0: Hello, and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Deeply Technical series.
1: Welcome to Kodish. This is Robert Blumen. I am a DevOps engineer at Salesforce. I have with me Doug Foley. Doug is a software engineer at Google, where he is the tech lead for the Go language implementation of gRPC. He's active in the open source community relating to gRPC and distributed systems, and is a graduate of Carnegie Mellon University. Doug,
0: welcome to Kodish. Uh, thank you very much. Glad to be here.
1: Doug and I will be talking about gRPC today. Doug, to start out, let's talk about RPC without the G. What does it stand for?
0: Uh, so RPC stands for Remote Procedure Call, and essentially it's any way for a client and a server to exchange messages.
1: How does a remote procedure call differ from a procedure call?
0: Uh, so the remote part then would be the key. So remote meaning a client and server are typically on different machines, although not necessarily.
1: What are some of the failure modes for an RPC that we don't have with a regular procedure?
0: Um, Right. So with the remote procedure call, you could potentially have issues with the network itself connecting the machines. And so you get errors there if uh, the network goes down.
1: Whereas within a programming language, procedure call does not get lost on its way from the point where you call it to the code.
0: Right. Exactly.
1: There have been RPC packages for many years. Could you describe some features common to RPC in general?
0: Yeah, so RPC in general, I guess, just enables any client and server to um, exchange messages on a basic level. Um, so they might have different features, though. So, for instance, uh, with gRPC, it enables you to do a streaming call where data is exchanged sort of freeform, where the client and server are just continuously streaming messages to each other. Um, and there's also a different type of mode where the client would send a request, and the server sends a response, and it's sort of a just a single message in each direction.
1: Does the industry agree on a canonical architecture or design for RPC implementations, or are they all quite different?
0: I think they're pretty similar in that regard. Um, there, there are obviously differences between the different types of technologies you can use here. And then if you talk about things like REST, if you consider that, that's not really RPC. Um, But if you look at something like REST, it's similar in some ways to uh, unary RPCs, uh, but it doesn't give you uh, streaming options, for instance.
1: And what would that canonical architecture based on shared assumptions look like?
0: Uh, So usually what you would do is upfront, you would define a schema for the different types of methods that can be invoked by the client upon the server. And, uh, and it, within that schema, you would talk about the different uh, options that you have for mes- uh, methods themselves, and also what the data format is for the messages, so the types of information that's included by the client in the request, and the, the type of data sent back by the server in the response.
1: So by schema, is that something like a header file or an interface definition in a conventional programming language?
0: Right, yeah, it's it's very similar to that, or exactly like that. Um, it depends on your RPC framework. In gRPC, uh, typically, you would use an IDL uh, of protobuf in order to define your services and your messages.
1: And IDL stands
0: for? Uh, Interface Definition Language. So it's essentially a separate language that can be used to describe your schema, and then from there, um, you typically would generate code or data structures for the language that you're implementing the RPC framework in.
1: What are the steps that this generated code does to implement the RPC?
0: Typically, um, what uh, with Protobuf, what would happen is the uh, the IDL file itself, the Protobuf definition, would be parsed by the Protobuf parser. Um, at that point, the Um, intermediate format of that that definition would be passed to a language-specific library, and then that would analyze the different services and methods and generate the necessary code for the language from there.
1: So you mentioned Protobuf. Give us a brief overview of what that is.
0: Right. So Protobuf is an IDL. It was developed by Google. It was used internally for a number of years, but has since been open-sourced. Um, And essentially, it allows you to define uh, message types and services, and it will generate in tens of languages um, different language bindings that describe those messages. And also, it enables you to um, serialize and deserialize messages of those types so that they can be transmitted on a network.
1: If I understand where you're going with that, it sounds like you could call an RPC from one language and the recipient side could be in a different language. Is that correct? Right, exactly. Now, I've read that Google has had multiple generations of internal RPCs with gRPC being the newest one. How were previous generations unsatisfactory and what motivated the development of gRPC?
0: Let's see. The Actually, the uh, technology that we're using inside of Google is called Stubby. And um, that's still actually widely in use. Um, We have gRPC available internally now, um, but it's a long process to try to migrate things. Uh, In terms of the different features that are provided by gRPC and Stubby, the feature sets are actually very, very similar. Uh, gRPC was inspired a lot by Stubby, and in fact, was uh, built by a lot of the same people. But the architecture itself is a bit different. So I wasn't here when the project started uh, for gRPC. I would imagine that it was considered to open source Stubby itself, but there's a lot of uh, sort of problems with Stubby in terms of the libraries that it requires are all um, also uh, Google proprietary libraries, internal. And so those would all need to be open sourced as well in order to open source Stubby. So I think that would pose a major problem for trying to open source something like Stubby. Um, also, Stubby is built directly on top of TCP, meaning that it needed to implement a lot of the features uh, that gRPC actually gains benefit of more modern uh, transports in the open source community like HTTP2, which it's built on, uh, to provide features uh, like bidirectional streaming and stream multiplexing. So there's a lot of good reasons to uh, essentially start from scratch on gRPC, uh, which is what we did.
1: You mentioned HTTP2. What does HTTP2 bring to the RPC world that uh, differentiates it from either RPCs built on directly on TCP or on HTTP1-based?
0: Okay, yeah, so HTTP1 um, is very limited in terms of the types of things that you can do with it uh, in the context of RPCs. HTTP2 is a lot more uh, friendly in that regard. Uh, The things that HTTP2 adds that HTTP 1.1 did not have are uh, stream multiplexing, so allowing you to have more than one uh, stream of communication between the two endpoints, and also uh, bidirectional streaming where the client and server are able to send and receive messages uh, asynchronously essentially as the as the stream lifecycle exists. Um, if you were to implement this, uh, obviously HTTP2 is built on top of TCP, pretty much everything is. Um, so you could you know, do all these same things over TCP and that's what Stubby does, but you need to uh, deal with a lot of that complexity yourself and you have to build your own protocol, which is what HTTP2 defines.
1: Be fair to say then that gRPC it's a much smaller project because it's building on bigger building blocks.
0: Uh, for sure, versus the internal stubby tool that we use at Google, it's uh, much simpler in that regard. Um, we're able to leverage the HTTP/2 libraries, and in fact, our protocol is a pretty minor extension on top of HTTP/2.
1: You mentioned the stream multiplexing. Would that work? In the manner of a uh, service A is talking to instance of service B, that all of the threads in the server running service A are using the same HTTP two connection to service B.
0: Right. Yes, that's that's definitely possible. Uh, the gRPC framework allows you to use multiple connections to potentially uh, services running on a number of different machines. But yes, you're you're able to. Uh, create multiple streams over a single connection as well.
1: When would you use either one or multiple connections based on what considerations?
0: Sort of an entry-level RPC approach would be to have a single server for all of your clients, but you'll quickly run into scaling problems that way as your load increases. And so at that point, it's good to have uh, multiple backends for uh, two purposes one of which is uh, load balancing to enable you to scale to support more and more clients. And another one is just for fault tolerance so that in case a uh, server crashes, then the clients are able to essentially continue uninterrupted uh, by communicating with the services that are still active. Just now mentioned
1: load balancing. Most networks are set up to load balance HTTP protocols pretty well. Does gRPC get that for free?
0: Yeah, so you can use a existing um, proxy type load balancer that you have using gRPC uh, because uh, most of these uh, load balancers uh, understand HTTP2, and gRPC is just a layer on top of HTTP2. So anything that routes uh, HTTP2 can also route gRPC.
1: So you've got all the right ports open and you can get through the network without having to do a lot of work with your network engineering team. Right, right. Can you explain the term head of line blocking and how is it avoided?
0: Oh, so head of line blocking uh, in the context of an RPC would be uh, essentially you would have multiple RPCs that you're trying to perform simultaneously. And if one of them stalls, then you don't necessarily want the other ones to be blocked as well. Um, In HTTP2, the stream multiplexing allows these streams to have their own uh, flow control, which means that if one of them stalls, uh, the other ones are still able to make forward progress uh, regardless of the, the progress of that one that's blocked.
1: And that would be an example of something that gRPC gets from HTTP2, correct?
0: Uh, correct. Although flow control itself, um, it's, a, it's part of the protocol and it's defined by HTTP2, but it is a bit tricky to manage it correctly as an application, which uh, the HTTP2 spec even calls out um, directly. Um, so, so that does take a bit of effort to get that working right. Could you give an example of how you could get
1: yourself in trouble by not doing it quite right?
0: Sure, we've had bugs in the past uh, (laughs) related to this. Essentially, though, flow control is um, a way of a receiver pushing back on the sender uh, to let it know that it's not ready to receive data. And um, we have had um, in uh, the gRPC Go implementation, we have had uh, issues in the past that were caused by um, head of line blocking type situations where uh, one stream not reading would block all of the streams from the sender from being sent, but we have uh, since uh, essentially taken a a new approach to the way that we do flow control since then. So it's a bit challenging, but essentially what what was happening at that layer is flow control applies uh, both to a stream on a stream-by-stream basis, but because you're allowed to have so many streams on a connection, if you only applied it at that level, you would end up potentially with a lot of data Uh, sitting on the server needing to be processed, but nothing reading it if you allowed all of the streams to send their maximum amount of data. So you also have connection level flow control, which prevents uh, that from building up as well. Um, And so uh, we now uh, use that, um, that transport level connection level flow control a bit more intelligently in order to avoid situations like that.
1: Is this something that the developer who's using
0: gRPC needs to worry about, or is this something you have to get right in the libraries? Uh, yeah, that's a most a, mostly a library concern. So it it potentially impacts your application um, in that when the flow control limits are reached, your application will receive pushback. Uh, and in blocking APIs, it's fairly it's fairly trivial to deal with. Essentially, when you go to send a message that call will stall until you have sufficient flow control available to send that message. Uh, It can be a little trickier for asynchronous APIs uh, where um, you have to, ahead of time, confirm that you have enough flow control to send a message before you do uh, perform that call. But um, aside from that, uh, most of the complexities and trickiness of dealing with flow control are handled by the library itself.
1: You just now mentioned that blocking and asynchronous APIs, do the libraries support both models?
0: Um, So in C++ and Java, which are the two of the three main languages that we support, uh, they have both asynchronous and synchronous models. Uh, In the Go implementation, which uh, I'm I'm working on, the Go style and community uh, doesn't really use asynchronous in general. Uh, Blocking calls are preferred for most operations. And so for Go, we only have blocking APIs. With
1: HTTP, the protocol itself returns a protocol status result. Then you have the gRPC abstraction where you have a method which might return a method result. If the status result is some kind of error code, there may be error metadata. How does a client or the developer programming separate the HTTP status issues from the method data.
0: Okay, so the gRPC library uh, attempts to abstract all of that away from the user. And uh, our APIs deal with gRPC statuses uh, exclusively and not HTTP status codes and things like that. So that said, uh, HTTP status codes do happen because we are built on top of HTTP and uh, if there is a proxy in the middle, then that proxy might send back unusual status codes. Uh, Whenever you're communicating with a a gRPC backend, um, that backend actually will always only return uh, status okay, and then it would return a gRPC status error, which is what we would uh, convey to the user. Uh, So we wouldn't normally have to worry about that. But with a proxy in the mix, you potentially get back HTTP status codes that are not okay, and so uh, we need a way to translate those into something that the user's application is able to understand. Typically, it turns into an unknown status in the gRPC world. And then the, um, the information about the status, the text uh, data would include the HTTP status code and any information that came out through that path.
1: It's fairly common in microservices, you're chaining RPCs from service A to B, to see, suppose somewhere further down the chain, you hit a bad status. Does each layer wrap that and you get back something failed or do you get a full kind of a stack trace of where the original failure happened?
0: Um, yeah, that would all be up to the service implementers at that point. So so when like a service somewhere in the middle of the chain uh, sees that HTTP error, it would need to handle that in some way, right? So it could choose to retry the operation, and then no error would be seen by the client calling that service, or it could choose to propagate that error uh, directly or indirectly. Um, at that point, really, it comes down to how you've uh, programmed your application and your, you know, all of your applications together uh, in terms of like, do you get a full-on stack trace, or does each layer? sort of hide the details of what happened below there.
1: We talked a little bit about protobufs. How does protobuf make the cross-language RPCs possible?
0: So protobuf is really great in that uh, it's supported by so many different languages. So when you define your uh, IDL once, then you end up with something that works in all of these different languages. And then uh, when gRPC comes into the mix, then you end up able to transmit that data in a serialized form over the network. And then it doesn't matter whether the remote side is in the same language or a different language. It's able to receive the data off the wire, deserialize it using the protobuf library that it has, uh, and then get it into a format that it's able to work with uh, in a native language-native way.
1: What are some of the languages that protobuf exists in?
0: So let's see. So we have uh, C++, Java, and Go, which are the three main uh, gRPC languages. Also, um, the C implementation of gRPC is wrapped uh, in a number of different languages, um, like C# Sharp and uh, Node and Ruby, and all of these languages also have Protobuf support as well. And there's there's many more. I just I can't remember them all. Is it possible to
1: call gRPC from JavaScript code that runs inside a browser?
0: Yeah, so there's a couple different ways to do that. Uh, One is uh, gRPC Web, which is a project that is uh, more owned by the core gRPC team, and that enables you to use JavaScript to perform RPCs uh, in a fairly similar way that you would if it was a desktop application or a server application. And then the other style is there's a program called gRPC Gateway, uh, and that's actually an open source uh, contribution, but it enables your servers to essentially provide a REST endpoint that converts a gRPC service into a REST-looking endpoint, and then uh, browsers are able to access your gRPC service uh, without using any special JavaScript code or anything, just normal. Um, normal REST-style calls.
1: As a developer working with HTTP 1-based services, it's very convenient to use curl, especially if the data is in JSON format. Is there anything equally as convenient for developers in the uh, the gRPC world?
0: Yes, uh, for sure. So um, as we mentioned sort of at the beginning here, uh, Google's been using Stubby for a number of years and uh, gRPC is very similar to Stubby. And um, obviously in order to uh, develop Stubby applications and a whole uh, suite of microservices all running uh, that type of framework, then you need an easy way to be able to debug that. And so typically with um, REST, you would be using JSON and you would be using curl. Um, With gRPC, uh, there is a tool that we built uh, called gRPC-CLI. And there's also an open source tool that we're moving towards more called GRP curl. And uh, that basically brings uh, curl-like functionality to your gRPC microservices. Uh, it's in fact better than curl in some ways because the way that it works is the service exposes the um, schema that it provides through a reflection service. And now this GRP curl or GRPC CLI application is able to discover the actual protocol through that reflection service uh, and learn about exactly what methods are available and see the format of the data for the request and see the the data for the response. And so you can actually uh, do even better uh, debugging through that than you could through curl where you sort of have to know Uh, ahead of time, what methods you can call and what the schema is. We've talked about features provided
1: by HTTP, one of those being TLS. Does gRPC piggyback on the TLS implementation of the HTTP?
0: Yeah, so uh, TLS is fully supported. Um, The way that works is um, when gRPC uh, creates a connection to a remote service, Uh, they would negotiate TLS at that time. um, And actually um, TLS uh, then would secure the communications over that transport and TLS is optional. And also there are other alternatives that you can use instead of TLS if that's what you need for your system.
1: Let's talk about now the developer workflow. I understand I'd start with an IDL and specify the methods, parameters, names and types. What are the steps that the developer now goes through to get that RPC client and server up and running?
0: So the next thing that you would do after defining your IDL is you would run the protobuf tool itself in order to generate uh, language bindings for those messages and services. The gRPC version of the proto plugin will generate the services in a way that allows um, the calls to go through the gRPC library. Once that happens... Client applications would essentially use this generated code directly to create wrappers around a gRPC connection that then allow you to call into it using language native um, bindings in order to perform those calls uh, in a very natural way. On the service side, um, you would implement uh, interfaces that are defined by that step. And implementing those interfaces will implement the method uh, calls that you'll be handling on the server side.
1: This might be language-specific question. Do I, on the server side, modify generated code by adding implementations to the same files, or is the code that the developer writes kept separate from the generated code?
0: Right, so for gRPC and protobuf in general, the generated code uh, ends up in files that are not to be modified by the user if they were were done uh, the other way where you added your implementation code into the generated code, then uh, potentially when you wanna change your services, like if you wanna add fields to a message or if you wanna add methods to a service, then now you would would potentially run into problems when you went to regenerate those uh, language bindings. So uh, the code always ends up in a separate uh, file that you then uh, import or include by your application and you go from there. If I, for example,
1: added a method parameter to a method, but I forgot to update the code that implements the method, would I get either a compile failure or some kind of runtime error?
0: Um, So if you add a new method, uh, then at that time, uh, if your service did not implement the method, then when the client made the call to the service uh, for that method, uh, the library would return back an error back to the client saying that this method was unimplemented. Uh, So um, your application will still continue to compile. It's just that the methods that you don't implement uh, return not implemented.
1: I want to switch gears again. You mentioned streaming. What is a use case for streaming?
0: Um, So, right. So I guess uh, when we talk about streaming, there's actually... Uh, three different kinds of streaming. So the sort of base RPC is unary, where the client sends one message, the server sends one response. Um, and then there are three types of streaming, which are server streaming, client streaming, and bidirectional streaming. So depending on your application, you might choose a different mode for your method. So where you might use server streaming is uh, if you have, a, for instance, a database request where the client sends a simple message to indicate its uh, request for data from a database, uh, and then the server potentially needs to return a lot of information that matches that query, Uh, you would often use a streaming RPC for that, where every message that you stream would be a database entry, for instance. If you move on to client-side streaming, uh, this could be something like uploading a file, because the client would chunk the data and send it over the course of many, many messages but the server really just needs to listen, uh, receive all of those messages. And then once the client indicates that it's done, the server would just say, okay, yes, I got it. And then bidirectional directional streaming, uh, an example here would be PubSub, for instance, where a server might stream messages to a client for it to process and the client to send back acts indicating that it uh, received the message and processed it.
1: Would use cases like a map with cars driving around that I want to be updated in real time or a price chart showing real-time stock quotes are those examples of use cases where you'd use the bi-directional
0: yeah so um, I guess it would depend on how you wanted to implement it but either bi-directional or server streaming there would be appropriate um, because I, I think in in your examples um, it could be the case that the client really just sends an intro message to say, subscribe, and then the server now will be streaming updates as things change.
1: Is this a better solution than what the web has struggled with for for more or less forever to the issue of events that originate on the server that need to be pushed out to the client? You have things like long polling and comment and other ways of trying to hack a request response protocol into an asynchronous event delivery system?
0: Yeah, I mean, so I think the challenge for the web when you talk about sort of the web is that it's HTTP based and really HTTP 2 support isn't uh, that great in a web browser. Um, And so this this type of approach would be great, but I think unfortunately a lot of the time when you're dealing with the web, you're dealing with HTTP 1. And so you're sort of stuck with some of those long poles like you're talking about. But if you have a client server application for your enterprise, uh, this is definitely the way to go.
1: One of the main competitors is going to be REST. In REST, you have just the four methods, but you can take the thing that doesn't fit into those four methods and call it a resource. So kind of ends up being almost the same Is there any real difference between doing a put to account slash transfer or having a transfer method?
0: I think they're pretty interchangeable in that regard. Um, I think a a put from REST would map pretty similarly to a unary RPC in gRPC. I'm starting
1: up a project and ask you for advice, what are some pros and cons of gRPC versus REST?
0: Uh, So for gRPC pros versus REST, Uh, would be the streaming that we talked about. That kind of thing is not supported in REST. And um, another one is if you're using REST, then a type of operation where the client wants to read a value, modify the value, and then write the value back, but in a way that um, no other modifications to that can happen in the meantime, that type of thing is not really possible on REST you can implement it sort of by workarounds in REST, um, but otherwise it's actually pretty tricky. Whereas in gRPC, you could do this uh, with a streaming RPC where the client would indicate to the server, please give me this information and then it would make the local modifications and then it would push back to to the server, like use this as the new data for that value. I guess some advantages of REST would be that it's, you know, it is sort of an industry standard. And so a lot of, existing endpoints already know how to deal with REST, and there's a lot of um, you know community and uh, ecosystem built up around REST.
1: In a distributed system, there
0: are a couple of solutions out there for distributed tracing. Does that play well with the gRPC? gRPC is essentially built based on all of our learnings at Google from Stubby, and so uh, we certainly have this type of capability within Google, and so uh, it was extremely important for us to get that functionality into gRPC as well. So the way that that works is through a plugin interface using interceptors, or um, in Go, we call them stats handlers, where the transport itself at the low level is able to call out into a third-party application, uh, which would be the uh, distributed tracing library in this case. Uh, and uh, inform it of all of the operations going on and allow it to um, actually interact with the RPC a bit uh, in terms of essentially injecting headers onto the RPC to uh, indicate the tracing information that it needs.
1: Building a distributed system with a microservice architecture, is your RPC a good model for the internal service-to-service communication?
0: Oh, for sure. Um, I think uh, definitely, that's um, that's the way I would recommend doing it. Um, it allows you to build um, your services in a way that creates a lot of small applications uh, owned either by different teams or even if it's the same team owning the code, um, you can deploy them independently, you can upgrade them independently. And gRPC enables you uh, to have this type of architecture which is a lot more flexible. You can scale different parts of it. So if uh, one part of your service needs to be used by a different um, application for whatever reason, you can start scaling up that part of your service without needing to do anything to the other services. Uh, and really it just uh, opens the door to a lot of possibility. And I think it's it's definitely a great way to uh, develop an application for any enterprise.
1: Doug, we've covered... Uh Pretty good overview of gRPC here. Was there
0: anything you wanted to talk about that we haven't discussed? The gRPC community is uh, all open source, and uh, we are part of uh, CNCF. And we're always looking for more contributors, more users. Um, we're our uh, GitHub repos. Uh, we're always happy to hear uh, feature requests, and uh, especially happy to uh, uh, help you with uh, any bugs you think you might have encountered in our library. Uh, we also go out and uh, proactively look on Stack Overflow um, and we have a, a Gitter uh, and a Slack, I believe as well. Um, and we um, monitor these and uh, try to help our community as much as we can. So uh, please feel free to reach out to us. Uh, let us know any thoughts you have um, and yeah, we're happy to hear from everybody.
1: Where's the point people should start on the web to learn more?
0: So, the main website would be grpc.io. That is for our, uh, that has all of the sort of starter information. It has uh, getting started guides. It has more sort of uh, in depth uh, API uh, documentation there. Um, And then the code itself is hosted on GitHub. So, you can find that at github.com slash grpc. Uh, that'll take you to the org that would then link to all the different language implementations and the other uh, side projects that we have going on. If
1: listeners would like to reach out to you, where can they find you on the internet?
0: Uh, So the best way would be through GitHub. Um, So I am dfolly on GitHub. Uh, I assume you'll put that in the show notes. And yeah, so that's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. Or, you know, if it's gRPC related, feel free to open an issue in our repo. Uh, there's uh, under the issues, new issue, there's a ask a question button. That's great if you have a question, even if it's not a feature or a bug.
1: Great. Doug, uh, thank you so much for speaking to Kodish. Great. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Kodish podcast. Kodish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Kodish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.